Well, why don't we start here? We're on page uh, 16 of our notes, I believe. Page 16, Paul at Philippi. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to look again at the Word of God. We're thankful as we read about the life of the great apostle, what inspiration he is to us, his dedication, his focus, his purposeful life for the gospel. Pray that you'll give us a measure of that in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts chapter 16. Paul at Philippi. You remember he was at Troas and he got the Macedonian call to come over in Acts 16 and help us. And he goes to Philippi, sails first to Thamothrace. They stop overnight there at this island. And then they sail on to Neapolis, which is the port for Philippi, about 10 miles away. They take the Via Ignatia, which runs there through Neapolis and up into Philippi. And they come to Philippi. And we saw a little bit about the excavations at Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. So what happened, remember, Rome would, when, it, when Rome conquered the ancient world, when Rome conquered this area of, of Greece, Rome conquered Greece in the 2nd century B.C., the 2nd century. So around 160, 150, they conquered Greece. And so when they conquer these various areas of Greece, they, let, they, they discharge soldiers and give them land in that area and, and produce little Roman cities there, little Roman colonies. And so they create a Roman city, a forum, and so forth. Uh, just like a lot of these other cities we've seen, they had a theater. We were looking at uh, the conversion of Lydia here, or we were down to about the conversion of Lydia here in verse 13. Uh, one day when they were going to the place of prayer, and here is that Crinity's River, possibly the place where... Paul went, that's the river, so somewhere probably along this river is what we're talking about here, possible place. Um, it says, we went to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So there was no apparent synagogue facility there, no synagogue building like we've seen at other cities Paul went to. Paul went to the synagogue. According to Jewish writing, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Mishnah, according to that, a synagogue was to be established where there were ten male heads of households, where they could be ten heads of households and regular attendants. And so apparently there was not here. It's hard to know. Uh, Paul says they went down by the river here to a place of prayer. Some people think this was a synagogue, but... Luke uses the word synagogue all throughout Acts, and he doesn't use it here, so it sounds like there was no synagogue, but just a place of prayer in the place of a synagogue where Jewish people met. And Jewish writings talk about the fact that they would meet near a river. Why near a river? We're not sure. Maybe for washings, uh, some some sort of Jewish washings and rituals and some, some sort of thing like that. Very possibly is the case. But they come there, and... Uh, they uh, 
I'm sorry, I was reading verse 16. I should have been reading verse 13. So, on the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Uh, we sat down and began to speak to a woman who had gathered there. One of whose listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. Thyatira is over here in this province of Asia Minor. We looked at there's Ephesus where Paul wanted to go, and we will see he will go. He's at Philippi, but she's from Thyatira here. And uh, this is a uh, city, as I say, in the Roman province. It was famous for purple dyes and for dyeing clothes. And uh, she's listening. She was a worshiper of God. That means she was one of those God-fearers, a person who went to the synagogue, a Gentile woman. But the Lord opened her heart to respond to the Lord's message. And that's, you know, as I say, a perfect description of, of effectual grace, of God's grace. That's what happened to us. You know, one day the Lord opened our heart. We may have heard the gospel before. We may have rejected it. We may, may not have. But one day the Lord just opened our hearts to where we were willing to receive it and glad to receive it and accept it and so forth. And that's what it takes. I mean, it's good to know a lot about the Bible. It's good to no scripture verses. It's good to be able to uh, help people with their problems as they, you know, they have questions about the Bible. But ultimately, <laughs> it's the Lord who has to open people's hearts. Yeah. So even, you know, people who have relatively don't know a great deal can still be a witness, can still testify about the gospel. Uh, it's not a complicated message. It's just the person of Christ and what he's done. Because it's really the Lord who opens the heart here. Uh, of people we're not really it's, you know it's impossible to reason people totally or completely into the kingdom of God it's the work of the Lord to open their hearts so they see her there uh, the Lord opens her heart when she and the members of her household were baptized she invited us to her home to consider me a believer in the Lord she said come and stay at my house and she persuaded us so apparently a woman of some means and Paul stays at her house. And then well, I jumped ahead with the demon-possessed woman, verses 16 through 18 here. Here was this woman, a female slave, who had the spirit by which she predicted the future. This uh, spirit is literally a spirit of a python. The Greek is, or a Pythian spirit. This uh, word originates from, uh, apparently, the oracle at Delphi, the most famous... The, the, the Greeks were famous for their oracles, where you would go and you would uh, go to a temple. Usually it was a female priestess there and other workers, and you would go there and get your fortune told. You, you would go there and ask a question, and you would, you would, some priestess usually would mumble something and some gibberish, and they would be interpreters who would tell you, you know, you have to pay for this, of course, you know. And, uh, and uh, so, people, you know, if you read if you read much Greek literature, if you remember mythology or anything, there's always references to the Delphic Oracle, uh, the most famous one of all. The fact is, there was a king here uh, in this particular area in ancient times, the time who uh, once asked uh, the Delphic Oracle about, you know, if he went to battle, what would happen? And the Delphic Oracle told him and said. Uh, if you go to war, this was this was in the time of Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. Uh, this king Crescens here asked the he went over to the Delphic Oracle, 
I don't can't see it on the map here, but in Greece, and ask the Delphic Oracle, uh, if I go to war, what will happen? And the Delphic Oracle said, if you go to war, uh, a great army will be defeated. Well, he went to war and he got defeated. <laughs> so he goes back to the Delphic Oracle and says, what happened? Well, you didn't ask which army you know, <laughs> would be defeated. Need another couple bucks on that. I one. know, yeah. <laughs> so it was that. That was supposedly that's the kind of answer is these ambiguous, just like horoscopes today. You know, they're ambiguous kind of nonsense. You know, but but this I was getting this Pythian here. Uh, the word originated referred to this snake that Apollo killed and established in Delphic Oracle. And according to mythology, this Delphic Oracle came about because Apollo. Uh, one of the gods on Mount Olympus uh, killed this snake and established this Delphic oracle with the spirit of this python, this Pythian spirit. So the, the word here is this Pythian, is, is really Pythian spirit. Um, and so people who, who could tell the future were said to have a Pythian spirit. Now in this case, the girl's demon possessed. We know that very clearly. She's predicting what she's predicting by demon possession. And we assume she can do some good stuff here, you know. Some, And if you think about it, Satan knows a lot. And he has demons under his control. And they know a lot. They know a lot more than humans know. So they can make some pretty accurate forecasts. You know, they can make some pretty good predictions, you know, about things. Not 100%, but since they, since they have more knowledge than we have, and, and Satan has demons all across the world... He can know things that the average person can't know. So, so I assume you know she was able to predict some things or forecast some things, make suggestions about things, and that brought money for her owners. It says by fortune telling, and so uh, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, "These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling us the way to be saved." It's a little unclear exactly what's happening here because, as I say. This phrase, the Most High God, was a phrase used by Jews for the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, but it's also used by Greeks for Zeus. So, who is she saying when she says the Most High God? Is she saying, you know, is she talking about the real God of the, of the Bible, or is she talking about just God, Zeus, or who is she talking about? She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Uh, I suggest here that maybe Paul was following the example of Jesus here when he cast out this demon. I mean, I'm sure he was concerned about the girl. She's demon-possessed. That's a terrible thing. But here, it might be confusing to have demons sort of praising you or saying something about your ministry. Jesus, as I mentioned um, in Mark 1, he says, uh, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The immature spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. So Jesus apparently did this because he didn't want to be praised by the demons. He didn't, he didn't want Satan or demons to be saying you know, who he was or giving approval of who he was. He didn't want to be any association with the demonic. didn't want any association at all with the demonic. So he cast this demon out. 
And it could be that that's what's going on here. Paul, in particular, takes pity on her, but in particular, he doesn't want to have any association with anything of the demonic. Well, that causes a lot of problems because, remember, it says that she made a great deal of money for her owners in verse 16 by fortune-telling. When her owners realized that their hope of making money, verse 19, was gone, they seized Paul. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Um, As I say here, their hope of money was gone. The reasons the owners gave here was really what they're upset was economic. I mean, that's the reason they were upset because their hope of making money was gone. But they don't really say that. They they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. So they start off with anti-Semitic slur right at the beginning. You know. These men are Jews. That's all you need to know. Anti-Semitism was extremely prevalent in the Roman Empire. It's been prevalent throughout you know, history, world history. Jews have been despised. But it was really prevalent in the Roman Empire. We know that. Very, 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 very well known. So just to say, well, these men are Jews, and they're they're despised because they don't really follow the gods. They don't worship the emperor. They they're not polytheists. They, they you know, so they're despised, and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So as I say here, they express their anger in terms that appeal to this latent anti-Semitism and their racial pride. We are Romans. And so they seized Paul and Silas. Uh, Why just those two? I say they may have been singled out because they were leaders, but also they could have been identified by their appearance and dress as Jews. Uh, It says these men are Jews. So Paul, even though he was a Roman citizen... He didn't dress as a Roman citizen. That's very clear from this. He didn't. He wasn't. He was dressed as a Jew, and they quickly identify he and Silas as Jews, even both. Even though both we know, we learn are in fact Roman citizens. And so uh, they drag them. It says uh, into the marketplace here. Um. um Verse uh, 20, the crowds joined them in attack and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods and so forth. So they, they take them, you know, here they are in the forum again. So they're taking into the marketplace somewhere here. We know that here's the bema, here's the, the judgment seat. This is probably where the magistrates would have been at. So they would have probably been taken there as best uh, we can tell. Um uh, to face the authorities. Uh, it talks about these magistrates in verse 20. As I say, as a Roman colony, Philippi had a form of government that was independent of the provincial administration headquartered in Thessalonica. There were two chief magistrates called Duaviri in most Roman colonies, but in certain uh, colonies referred to by the honorary title of praetors, praetors, which corresponds to the Greek term used here. So there, Luke is using the correct terms here. Uh, for these particular, the Greek form of these these uh, uh, these men, and uh, so they're advocating this illegal religion. We're told in verse twenty-one. 
And uh, officially, Romans were not supposed to practice foreign religions. So if you were a Roman, you weren't supposed to practice foreign... There were a lot of foreign religions, obviously. Rome had conquered a lot of territory, Egypt and so forth. But you weren't supposed to practice these until Rome made these religions official religions. And Rome did that. They co-opted a lot of religions. They eventually brought in a lot of Egyptian religions and so forth. But it, it, what this practice was not uh, enforced... Uh, unless the religion violated some sort of Roman customs and so forth. Judaism had this special exemption. Judaism had this legal recognition. It's unclear to me exactly why they have this legal recognition. I've tried to do some research on it. The best I can, the people that I read, the best I can figure is that I've read, this is what I've read, that the Romans just kind of got tired of dealing with the Jews. They just, they just, uh, there are two things going on. On the one hand, they saw that they couldn't really hardly be converted to polytheist. On the other hand, the Romans had made alliances with the Jews in previous centuries when they were conquering the Middle East, when they were conquering Palestine. Uh, back in the second century BC, uh, Rome had not been conquered. Pompey didn't come in until 64 BC. So the Romans didn't conquer what we think of as Jerusalem and Palestine and all that. Until the first century, to, until the first century BC, and in the second century BC, uh, Palestine, Jerusalem, all this er- territory was controlled by a rival to Rome, the Seleucids, some Greek uh, leftovers from Alexander the Great, and so Rome made alliances with the Jews. In the second century, they made alliances with the Jews because they were trying to counteract the power of other power, other. other powerful nations there. So when I, what, I've, what I've read, it suggests that the Jews gained this legal status because on the one hand, they had made these previous uh, alliances with, with Rome and uh, sided with Rome against other nations. Secondly, Herod the Great had come along and uh, he had sided with the Romans and he had made alliance with Rome and he had sent his sons to Rome and so the Romans tolerated the Jews. Now they didn't tolerate, so they didn't tolerate Christians eventually. But right now they are. So right now Christianity is sort of un, running under the uh, the the umbrella of Judaism, and and so Judea, Christianity, as we'll see, is going to be tolerated for a while by the Romans uh, until Nero in sixty four just makes a break with that and begins to really persecute Christians. So Judaism had this legal recognition, even though the Romans hated the Jews, um, but they dragged them into the marketplace. And notice verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. As I say, this beating with rods is the usual Roman punishment probably carried out by the officers of verses 35 and verse 38. It talks about verse 35, officers, the officers uh, sent officers to the jailer, and verse 38, the officers reported to the magistrates. So you've got the magistrates, and then the praetores, and then you've got the, the praetores, and then you've got the, uh, the lictors here, maybe, who served the magistrates. 
these uh, these lictors carried these bundles of rods um, like this with an axe head that stuck out. This was kind of a symbol of authority. So they had these bundles of rods. They would carry these, and these were symbols of authority. I don't know whether they pulled a rod out and <laughs> beat it with that or what, but they did beat with wooden rods. We know that the Romans beat people with wooden rods, and this was a symbol of that authority. And this this symbol is quite common. You can see it here in the Department of Defense National Guard Bureau. You see these uh, here. Uh, these are known as fasces. F-A-S-C-E-S. I don't see chalk. You can even see them here in the Congress. Fasces. Remember Mussolini? Or what his government kind of philosophy that was called? Starts with an F. Fascism. Fascism. Fascism takes its name from that. From that uh, symbol there. That bundle here on that particular side. So... Uh, these people had these rods. Uh, again, I, this, I know they carried them. We know that. We have pictures of that, uh, engravings of that. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, Paul faced this a number of times. Remember, he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So the Jews, remember the Jewish punishment was whipping or lashing. And the Old Testament prescribed 40 lashes but you didn't do 40 lashes because if you miscounted and did 41 you'd be breaking the law yourself that is the, the, the administrator who was doing the punishment would be breaking the law so they always did 39 that way if you miscount you don't uh, you don't break the law yourself so 39 then three times I was beaten with rods well we know this was one of them but we don't know the other two because Acts doesn't tell us these other two but we know at least this one and two others he mentions. This uh, beating with rods and, of course, the flogging by the Jews. Well, it says they, after they had been flogged, they were thrown into prison. If you go to Philippi, this is the place they will show you. This is near the forum, right off the forum there. There's some debate about whether this is really the place or not. They found this place down here. Some people say it's more; it was more of a storage area. Some people say that it really was the prison. I mean, archaeology can't totally substantiate it. It is in the right place for a prison, but it's 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 not exactly clear here if that's true or not. But anyway, uh, we're all familiar with the story. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and then he, when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, but Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. We do know that there's a lot of 
references in Roman law to that if a guard would allow a prisoner to escape, he was often liable to the same penalty as what the prisoner had. And so that is, you know, we saw that before in the case of Herod. He killed, in the case of uh, when Peter got out of prison in Acts 12, Herod uh, had his guards killed because they said, hey, we went to the prison, we couldn't find him. And Herod said, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, we believe that one. And so he had to put to death. So uh, he was apparently concerned that the prisoners had gotten out and he would therefore suffer the death penalty himself. Um, so the jailer, uh, Paul said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As I mentioned here, I mean, just to ask that question, shows he had to have some knowledge of the message. I mean, Luke doesn't tell us all that, but it seems clear you know, the fact is, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, he had heard the gospel from Paul and Silas. He had heard, heard some of this because that's his response here. What must I do to be saved? And uh, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Now, this does not mean that the, that the jailer's household was saved because of his individual belief, I say here. Because if you notice in verse 32, it says, uh, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So it's not that Paul is saying, You'll be saved if you believe, and your household will be saved because you believe. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So according to verse 32, each individual in the household, I'm sure capable of understanding, Paul presented the gospel to that person. At that hour of the night, the jailer took him, took them, and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now, our Presbyterian friends love this verse <laughs> because they say, well, this proves it here that you baptize babies, you baptize infants. Because it says, the text says, he and all his household were baptized. And you know he had some small children, some small infants there. Well, we don't know that at all. You know, there's nothing in the text to say that. And in fact, we noticed here that in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, the jailer, and to all others in his house. So there's nothing to make us have to believe that these were small infants who are incapable of believing at all. We assume that these, whoever was in his household and was baptized were people who heard the word and were saved, capable of believing, and so forth. So uh, the jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in the Lord, he and his whole household. It is interesting to compare uh, this verse with verse 31. It, it doesn't say that Jesus is God, but it comes pretty close, doesn't it? Because it says, verse 31, they believed in the Lord Jesus. Or, or, or Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And verse 34 says, he had come to believe in God. 
So to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. Uh, it's kind of similar to what we had in Acts 5, where Peter has that same correlation between God and the Holy Spirit. Remember, he says, you haven't, uh, you have uh, tempted God, you know, the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of the same thing here, but it's an interesting correlation, certainly, that Luke is, is identifying Jesus in verse 31, belief in Jesus with belief in God in verse 34. Well, then we see uh, Paul and Silas uh, leave the city. Uh, verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officials to the jailer with the order to release these men. So obviously they just wanted to throw them into prison overnight. You know, they had this commotion, this problem. We, we, we don't... They have... They have made some people mad here. They, they, they have ruined this business opportunity for these businessmen who are making money off the fortune tellings of this poor girl. So throw them in jail. Now release them. The jailer told Paul, these magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. So Paul and Silas go back to prison. Isn't that interesting? So the jailer is saved. His household is saved. Paul and Silas, they baptize these people who are saved, and then they go back to jail because legally they were still, you know, they were still legally uh, in prison. But they said, you can go. Go in peace. Verse 37, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want us to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. So this was illegal treatment for Roman citizens, not for just the average, for the non-Roman, but just like in America, we do have that same principle that you can't punish someone without some sort of trial. You have to have a trial first. You have to have a hearing or something before you can execute a punishment. That was not true of non-Romans. You could torture them. Later on, we'll see in the book of Acts, when Paul is arrested at the temple, in the temple courts, you remember, the Romans take him up to the Fortress Antonio, and the first thing they're going to do is they can't figure out what's, what the commotion is about, so they're going to find out by torturing Paul to uh, find out what's going on. That was the usual method of getting the truth, you know. And Paul, again, raises his Roman citizenship there also. So here he brings it up. They have beat us without a trial. We're Roman citizens. Now, why did Paul bring this up at this time? Um, you wonder why didn't he bring it up earlier <laughs> when they were when they were beating him half to death, you know, here and throw him into prison? Why didn't he say something then? Maybe he did. You know, I don't know. Maybe he, you know, we don't know what happened. We don't know. Maybe he said, maybe he said we're Romans. Or I don't know. And they said, oh yeah, right, right. Yeah, you look like a bunch of Romans, don't you? I don't know. He may have brought it up. We don't know if he did or not. Um. But here he does. He does bring it up. And why does he bring it up here? The most likely reason he brings it up here, because he didn't always assert it, uh, apparently. He didn't always assert it. Um, I mean, certainly when he had that five times I received the 40 stripes minus one, he could have gotten out a lot of that stuff, too. If he would have just said, hey, I'm a Roman. You Jews just leave me alone. But Paul didn't want to... Didn't remove his Jewish identity. He didn't want to uh, step aside from his Jewish... He didn't want Jews to think he was still not a Jewish man who was concerned about their interest and 
their future and so forth. So he didn't take that easy out. Here, apparently, he does it, I think, because he's concerned about the, the gospel's reputation and the future of the church here. So, um, later in Thessalonica, we're going to see that Paul is forced to leave the city not under the best circumstances. He, he just he has to leave because a bond is posted there and he just has to leave. But here, he doesn't have to leave and I think he's concerned about if, you know, if, if they just kick him out, the scoundrel, what is that going to do for the church? Uh, you know, what kind of, what will that bring uh, persecution on the church? Because look how they started out. This guy Paul came here and he was a criminal and he was put in jail and, and we beat him and got rid of him and, and this is the guy, you know. So I think that's a reasonable idea that he wanted to present, prevent the church from having a bad name and from receiving further persecution. And they did. We know because if you look, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Philippians later on, when he's in prison in Rome, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So Paul says, as a Christian, you're going to have to suffer some. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, when I was at Philippi, and now hear that I still have. See, Paul still has. Paul is in prison in Rome. He's being he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. But he says, you now, presently, when Paul's in prison, you are going through the same struggle. So apparently the Philippians still had trouble, you know, in Philippi from Roman authorities. This wasn't the end of it here. But I think Paul did this, I think the most reasonable explanation is so that the gospel wouldn't have a bad name, prevent persecution as much as possible from the church. Well, the officers, of course, reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed because this was illegal. They could be in trouble. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So they don't press it, but they uh, encourage the church and then leave on. And, of course, they're planning to anyway. As I say here in verse 40 at the bottom of page 18, this ends the we section. And the next one does not begin until Paul passes through Philippi on his third missionary journey. So remember, the we section just began in Acts chapter 15 uh, when, um, I mean in Acts chapter 16, when Paul got the Macedonian call um, in uh, chapter 16, verse 6. Um, so, uh, or not verse 6, but uh, verse uh, 9. And it says, During the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10. And Paul, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. And so we see we, 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 until we get to 17, chapter 17. Then Paul and, Paul and his companions 
When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So there's no we. Until we come to Acts chapter 20, verse 5. So Paul, on his third missionary journey, this is his second, will pass through Philippi and apparently pick up Luke. So Luke apparently stays to help the young church. Apparently he leaves Luke behind. And uh, many people surmise that Maybe this is why, hard to say, but Philippi seems to have a special relationship with Paul. You know, when you read the book of Philippians, you know, you were the ones, you were the only church that really helped me when I left Macedonia and so forth. We can imagine if Luke is there, sort of as pastoring the church or whatever, looking at the church, that there would be a close relationship with Paul. So now Paul, Silas, Timothy, if Luke is behind, they go on to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. So they go, as we read, they pass through Amphipolis, they pass through Apollonia, and they go to Thessalonica. Amphipolis is about 33 miles southwest of Philippi on the Via Ignatia. They're on this main road. This road, well, I'll show you a map in just a second. It comes across here. Goes through Neapolis, Thessalonica, all the way over to the coast. I'll show you that in just one second. Apollonia, 27 miles, is Apollonia. And then Thessalonica, about 40 miles, so about 100 miles from Philippi on the Via Ignatia. We wonder sometimes how Paul traveled. He doesn't really tell us. I guess he walked. That's commonly suggested that he walked, but maybe not. Maybe he rode on horseback. Um... But I say here, you know, if he traveled by horseback, he made it maybe in about three days. Um, it'd be much long, longer, seven, six, seven days. If he, if he walked, you were supposed to be able to walk 20, 25 miles a day. That seems like a yeah, lot. Of, that, seems, right. that seems like a lot of walking. <laughs> Jesus, walked, Jesus walked from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And Jesus walked from Jericho down to Jerusalem. Even a bus trip wears me out from Jericho to Jerusalem. I don't know how Jesus walked from Jericho to Jerusalem. To walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's just uphill all the way. If you've ever been there, it's uphill. And it's a long walk, and it's hot. And, but it's amazing to do that today. It's just absolutely astounding. But they did walk a long way in those days. So it's 40 miles past Apollonia. That's Thessalonica on the Via Ignatia. Uh, Thessalonica... That's the modern city of Salonica, was the capital of Macedonia. Remember, Paul's been in Philippi. That's a leading city, but not the capital. It's founded in 315 B.C. by the Macedonian general Cassander, who enlarged and strengthened the original city. He named it for his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. In 42 B.C., it was granted the status of a free, self-governing city in its internal affairs. The government was set up on a Greek rather than a Roman pattern. It's not a Roman colony like Philippi. And in Paul's day, the population may have been 100,000 to 200,000. That's a big guess, but that's what people often say. Um, so uh, here's Thessalonica. This is a, a model that's been constructed. If you go to Thessalonica in the museum there, and they've constructed this model based upon some excavations. Here's some excavations. Uh, 
this is the Thessalonica uh, Forum. They say Odium. The Odium is this theater. And Odium is the kind of theater with a roof over it. You know, it's covered with an Odium. This was a bus station. In the 1960s, they removed the bus station, and they were excavating, and this is what they found here. But remember, this is like we've talked about a lot. These ancient cities are on the bottom of other cities. So if you don't do any, you know, but they tore this up. So there it is, right in the middle of Salonica. So we know they had a theater there. You can see the forum. You can see the rectangular forum. Here's that odium there, that theater. Here's the eastern end. You can see these would have been, these are the bases of obviously large columns, you know, that would have been down the forum there at one time. There's the, from the southern stoa. Here's uh Crypto porticus arches. These crypto just means hidden, so these would have been covered arches. So they would have been covered. This, this they say this, this whole thing would have been covered. So you'd walk down through there, and it would have all been covered with some sort of material as you walked. You can see the arches there again. Here's some more supporting arches and so forth. So this is Thessalonica. It says in verse 2, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. So there was a synagogue there. They haven't found the remains of that in those remains. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So it says three Sabbath days. And if you keep reading this, if you just read quickly on, it looks like that Paul is only there about three Sabbath days. Uh... He reasoned with them for three Sabbath days. And then it says, uh, Jews got jealous. They rushed to Jason's house. They dragged him out of the city. And verse uh, 9, when they had made J- when they had, then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So it's, if you just read that account, verses 1 through 10, it sounds like all this happened within about three weeks. And sometimes, you know, I've heard some sermons preached on this. You, you, you know, you could talk about the miraculous uh, church planning efforts of the Apostle Paul. Three weeks, can you imagine? <laughs> Take us three months just to figure out if we're going to be have a church in this locale. You know what I mean? It, it seems like it takes a lot more time than three weeks, doesn't it? Even for the Apostle Paul, that seems pretty quick, doesn't it? I, I don't know. As I say, from the account, it may appear three weeks. However, this was probably only a synagogue ministry. I think that's more likely. I don't know for sure. But it says he went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. Even the synagogue ministry may have been longer than three weeks since we don't know if the three Sabbaths were consecutive. It says he went in there and reasoned on three Sabbath days. It doesn't say three consecutive, but maybe, maybe it was. But there are certain reasons for believing that Paul may have been in Thessalonica for a longer period of time, perhaps several months. I think he was probably there a little longer than three weeks. Even the great apostle, I think, would take a little longer 
to establish a church. Why do we think that? Um, there are some reasons. Paul engaged in gainful employment, which would be more in keeping with a longer stay. Like you can get a job for two or three weeks, it's true, but remember he says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toll and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. We preach the gospel. We didn't eat anyone's food, Second Thessalonians 3, without paying for it. We work night and day, laboring and tolling, so it would not be a burden. So it sounds like he was there maybe a little longer. B, Paul left a thriving church at Thessalonica, which suggests a longer ministry than three weeks. C, most of the church was composed of Gentiles, whereas Acts mentions only Paul's ministry in the synagogue. This is, I think, the, the real point right here. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. This is Paul writing back to the Thessalonians from Corinth. We'll see that Paul writes this. This is his first Thessalonians. Is, remember, Galatians, we said, it was his first epistle. His second epistle is going to be First Thessalonians, written just a few weeks, a few months from now, from Corinth. And he says to the, to the Thessalonians, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Remember, Paul is writing to the church as a whole. They tell us how you, Thessalonians, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, one thing we do know that can't be talking about Jews. There is absolutely no evidence and everything contrary to suggest that after the captivity, the Jews were not guilty of idolatry at all. There's just no Jewish literature or, or, or any other secular literature that talks about Jewish idolatry. Idolatry was pretty much cured, generally, as far as we know, by the captivity uh, in Babylon and so forth. And so when Paul says... You Thessalonians, you Christians, you turn from idols. Well, that's Gentiles. That's the only people they've been talking about. And so that suggests a longer ministry than maybe just three weeks, possibly, because Paul engages the whole church and talks about that. Paul received a special gifts from Philippi. It's 100 miles away. It takes a little while to get there. Remember, Philippians 4 Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, when I left Macedonia, left Philippi, and went over to Thessalonica, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So it suggests he was there maybe a while, because the Philippian church sent him aid once and then sent him aid again. They didn't have you know, Amazon Prime, you can get it in two days, you know. <laughs> it takes a little while longer to get stuff there. So, probably a little longer, I think. Well, he goes in there, he reasons in the scriptures, explaining verse 3 and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, remember these are the God-fearers, and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous 
We've seen this before, haven't we? So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. I say jealous because they were probably stealing the congregation again. This crowd, there's debate about whether this Greek term has more technical meaning of assembly of the people or whether it just means a crowd. It's the Greek word demos, which can mean an assembly, but more likely here it has the meaning of crowd as it normally does, as the word in verse 8 suggests here, crowd. And so uh, this crowd, this mob sort of group, they dragged... They, they, they could not find them, so they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, have come here. These men who have caused trouble, they have come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house, it says. Now Jason is uh, Paul's host, according to verse 7, because Jason has welcomed them into his house. So they dragged Jason... Apparently, that's the man that Paul is staying with and some other believers before these city officials. And, uh, I mean, apparently Jason is one of the converts here in verse 4. Remember, it says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women and others and so forth. Um, It's hard to know whether he's a Jew or a Greek, really, because he's got a Greek name, Jason. But in Paul's day, uh, Jews often gave their children Greek names too so they could be more acceptable in society. We've talked about that. And so it's difficult to know exactly his ethnic situation here. But anyway, they say that he's welcomed these people into his house. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, The crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As I say here, this verse 9, the Greek expression is a literal rendering of the Roman legal term, satis capere, and means to take security or a bond, which can be forfeited if the offense is repeated. The charge against Jason was that he had harbored seditious people. There was, however, no proof of this, as the sedition persons could not be found. Presumably, therefore, Jason's defense was a denial, and the bond was forfeited if he were to, it would be forfeited if he were found really to have connected with Paul. That's a work by folks, Jackson and Lake, called The Beginnings of Christian. That's what they say, and that's probably right. So that they make him post bond and say, we can't find these people, but you know, we'll, we're, we're going to let you go. We're not going to charge you, but you've got to post this bond, and if they come back and cause any trouble, then this bond is forfeited. So apparently that's what's going on here. Uh, Longner says this probably meant that Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonica and that their friends promised they would not come back, at least not during the terms of the present polytarchs. When writing his Thessalon- Thessalonian converts a few months later, Paul speaks of desiring to visit them again but of being unable to because Satan stopped us, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. That may be a reference to here. So Paul is sort of, not like he's not like the situation at Philippi. 
Here he's got Jason, this believer, who has posted this bond that Paul won't come back, that he won't cause any trouble. And what can he do? You know, he doesn't want to have Jason in jail, have Jason in trouble. So he agrees to leave here at this particular case. Um, So his hands are maybe tied here. And that's what happens, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Barnabas away to Berea. So they're at Berea. They travel from Thessalonica over to Berea. Uh, I say, it says Paul and Barnabas. He's not mentioned. Apparently he was with them uh, because, verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So Timothy is at Berea, we know. We assume he went with Paul and Silas. He could have come later, but we assume he is here. But Paul and Silas went to Berea. Um, Berea is, I say here, about 50 miles west-southwest of Thessalonica, south of this road called the Via Ignatia. It's been conjectured that Paul had originally planned to go to Rome on the Via Ignatia. But they changed his plans when he heard about the decree of Claudius in AD 49, which expelled the Jews from Rome. So here's this uh, Via Ignatia, this Roman road. Paul picked it up at Neapolis. He comes across here. I have Phyllis, Apollonia, Thessalonica. So one theory is that Paul planned to uh, take the Via Ignatia, get the boat over from Dyrrachium, and go up to Rome. Take the Roman road right up to Rome. One theory is it makes it makes some sense, uh, but that he changed his mind here because he heard about the decree of Claudius. Uh, the Roman writer Suetonius, writing about AD one twenty, said that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of someone that he spells as Crestus. This has been commonly taken as a reference to Christus or Christ, that the problem in Rome was due to this dispute between Christian and non-Christian Jews. Uh, although it's, it's just a conjecture here that Paul intended to go to Rome, it's interesting that some years later, um, some years later when Paul is writing to the Christians at Rome, he says that he has long wanted to go there that his intention was to go there. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you. And maybe he was planning right here. This would be the natural road, just stay on the main road, go over to Rome, you know. I planned, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I had among the Gentiles. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there's no place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, he says, I'm coming now. So it may be, possibly, this is just a conjecture, but it makes some sense to me that that Paul may have been going to take the main road, but then he hears about this decree. Now we'll talk about this decree again, because when Paul goes down from Berea, down to Athens and then finally gets to Corinth. When he comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla there. And they have come to Corinth because they got expelled in AD 49 from Rome. They were Romans, Jews. They got kicked out and they came to Corinth and Paul just runs up on them there. And they have the same trade. They're 
tent makers or leather workers as he has, and so he lodges with them. So uh, they're at Berea. Um, Here's Berea, the modern Berea. And there's not too much to see here because there is the modern city and there's no ancient ruins. Too much, too much ancient ruins. We can see a little bit. Um, Ancient wall here. Here is some paving stones from the Decuminus. Remember we talked about uh, the Romans when they built the city. They had a a north-south road that went this way, they called the Cardo, and then they had one that sort of split the middle there called the Decuminus, uh, the east-west road. So they found remains of that, uh, those paving stones there. Um, If you go to Berea, course they're trying to attract the tourists there so they have some murals there you know here's Berea mosaic of Paul teaching the Bereans and so they have some they have a they have a place there in the city where they have some murals here's the Macedonian call of Paul and so forth and kind of a plaque there and so forth but not much too much in the way of really ancient ruins to see there So, they went to the synagogue in verse 10, as usual. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's why we've got all these Berean Baptist churches around, you know. I used to say, nobody would name their church Corinthian Baptist Church. But one time, I was in Detroit, and I saw a church there that said Corinthian Baptist Church. Now, down south, they have, I think, Corinth, Mississippi, you can find Corinthian Baptist Church. But but no, there's there was at least one church in Detroit, I noticed it had a title. But most people want to be known by, not the Corinthians' problems, but by the Bereans, that they examine the scriptures and receive them, you know, willingly and so forth. Verse 12, as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast but Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy stayed at Berea. So I put a little arrow over there because it says they sent Paul to the coast. It's not exactly clear where how Paul gets to Athens here. We know he gets to Athens next. Some people think, well, the coast means that he he went by sea, as I have it drawn out here, which may in fact be the case. But there is a land route there. But it does say he went to the coast, but what does that mean? Does it mean he went to the coast because he was you know, on a ship or he just went to the coast? It's throwing his opponents off track that he had gone by ship maybe or something like that. Um, anyway, it says, uh, um, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens. 
and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. All right, let's stop here for tonight, and we'll see Paul, Lord willing, next week in the city of Athens. I'll say just a little bit about what's going on here. Thank you very much.